is is going to be from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27. As we always say, it's an expository preaching church, so be we go verse by verse, word by word, explaining the text, reading the text, explaining the text, and applying the text. That's all that we do here in this church. As I was working through the sermon, it was a difficult sermon to work with. Very convicting to me. And as we hear the sermon today, it is easy for us to say, I'm glad so-and-so is here to listen to the sermon. But I pray that as you hear the sermon, that you would understand what God's will is for your life through this passage. I pray that you would take time to examine your lives with humility. That is important as we read the scriptures and as we study the scriptures. Because it is humility that will allow us to look into God's word as a mirror. And instead of walking away with that, saying, well, I'm going to use this to correct someone else, that we would walk away with that, knowing, Lord, that you would minister to our own hearts and our minds. This passage, and in fact, chapter 4, is a practical section. It's called the put off and the put on. And the Apostle Paul has, has made it very plain to us. As we looked at last week, that we are no longer to be like the Gentiles live. And when we look at the word Gentiles we're talking about the Gentiles as in people who do not know God. That we would not be like the Gentiles live in trespass and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world. We were carried by the desires of the body and of the mind. And the Bible says we were as a result once children of wrath. That was a past condition. But we've been taken out of the old way of living and we've been transferred into the new way of living. We no longer belong to the kingdom of darkness, but instead we belong to the kingdom of light. We've been saved, we've been adopted, we are in His kingdom. Christ is our Lord. And therefore, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, that we are no longer to live like the Gentiles live. We've got to put out the old life and put on the new life of holiness. And if we continue to live in sin, it has its repercussions. We will destroy the relationship within the body of Christ because when you and I become believers, we are automatically transferred into the invisible church, but then we find ourselves associating or we have to associate ourselves with the local body of Christ. This being one such body. 
And if we continue to live in sin, it will affect the local body of Christ. It will affect our fellowship and our unity in the body. And this is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, was so concerned about the Ephesians and the Ephesian church because he knew that sin breaks fellowship. But holiness promotes fellowship. And as we'll see in the next few weeks, that the remainder of chapter 4 has to do with the right use of the tongue for the purpose of living. As we will see today, in verses 25 through 27, the sin of lying and the sin of anger causes disruption in the life of the Christian church. How can there be fellowship and unity when there is lying? And how can there be fellowship and unity when there is anger towards another believer? And let's read verses 25 through 28. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Ephesians chapter 4, 25 to 28. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is God's word. Two truths flow out of this passage. Always speak the truth. Verse 25. Always deal with anger promptly and biblically. Verses 26 through 27. Let's look at the first heading in verse 25. Always speak the truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. There are two commands in verse 25. There is a negative command, and then there is a positive command. The negative command is having put away falsehood. The positive command is let each of you speak the truth. And at the end of both the negative and the positive command, you see another sentence which says the reason why we are to put away falsehood and speak the truth is because we are members one of another. Let us look at the negative command, having put away falsehood. Having put away means you separate, you disassociate yourselves from, you depart from. The idea is to cease doing what you're doing, cease doing what you're accustomed to doing. Stop doing it. And what is it that you're to stop doing? It says, throw off lies and falsehood. Put away, like you would put away dirty, foul-smelling clothes. Put it away. What is falsehood here that you see in verse 25? It's an untrue statement. It is something which is an intentional violation of the truth. It's a lie. It's a deception. One preacher gave the following examples of falsehood or lies. He said it includes half-truth. Well, you kind of sort of tell the truth, but not the whole truth. 
you tell your boss that you weren't feeling well, which is kind of true. But in reality, you were not so sick so as to miss work. I mean, you had other plans for the day. It includes a white lie. An innocent lie that doesn't really hurt anyone. Then there are lies that cover for someone else or for ourselves. Your boss is in the office, but then you tell the caller he's not here right now. The rationale is that it wouldn't hurt any people, anyone in the process. Then there is a lie of exaggeration. You stretch the story to evoke some sympathy or to make you feel your, make yourselves feel better. Then there is a silent lie. This is a situation which somewhere someone assumes something about you which you know to be untrue. And you let it go by and don't say anything about it to correct it. Like you can lie with the tone of your voice or by the arching of your eyebrows. Then there is the evasive lie. You change the subject. You don't directly answer the question. Uh, whatever the lie, why do people lie? People lie either to deceive another person or to feel good about oneself or sometimes even to hurt another person. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 6, 16 through 19, God hates lying. There are six things the Lord hates, seven, that's an abomination to him, in which you see haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a false witness. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22 reads, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 reads, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put out the old self. So yes, that's the negative command that you see in verse 25. Put away falsehood. Now let's look at the positive command. It's there. It says, let each of you, each one of you, speak truth, every man with his neighbor. We are to speak the truth. What is the truth? Truth is that which is found in God's word. John chapter 17, verse 17 reads, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, we read, the truth is in Jesus. Read in John chapter 8, verse 45, Jesus always spoke the truth. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, except through me. John chapter 14, verse 17, we read, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. I mean, the very attribute of God is truth. It is, it is impossible for God to lie. We read in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, the in hope of eternal life, which God never lies. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, we read the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible 
for God to lie. A lie is the opposite of who God is. God is truth. And as believers who are in Christ, who are adopted in Christ, we are to put away falsehood and we are to speak the truth at all times. Satan, on the other hand, is the source of falsehood. John chapter 8, verse 44, we read, You're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. So Satan does not stand in the truth. And the Bible continues to read, There is no truth in Satan. When Satan lies, he speaks out of his own character. That means it is a character of Satan to lie. And the Bible says in John eight forty four that he is a liar. That is Satan. The devil is a liar and he is the father of lies. In Acts 5, you remember the story about Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias, along with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept a piece of the property for himself, proceeds for himself. And the rest he laid at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So Satan is a source of lie. And Peter identifies that. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan is the father of lies. He is characterized by lies. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, But I'm afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You know, in the Garden of Eden, the devil whispered a lie to Eve. He whispered a lie about the character of God. The original sin in the Garden of Eden was produced by a lie. Satan is the father of lies and there is no truth in him and he teaches others to lie. And in fact, once you lie, then you have to say another lie to cover up your first lie. I mean, this is a lifestyle. You continue in a lifestyle of lying until it spirals into addiction and life becomes very complex as a result because you now have to keep lying or you need to keep telling a lie to cover another lie. And this continues. Results in heartbreak, sadness, unhappiness, or not. You know, at the root of all lies, if you examine, is selfishness. Why do you lie? Because it's all about you. Self-centered. Pride. I mean, we have a desire to be thought well of by others. You want people to think good about you. We want people to praise us. We want people to know that we are good. We want the good opinion of others. And so people say or tell a lie. But not so God's people. God's people are truth-tellers. As Christians, we are to speak the truth. I mean, as children transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, we are always to speak the truth. And if we do not, we are demonstrating that we are still under the grip of the evil one. Isn't that what First John chapter 5, 
Verse 19 reads, it says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world, the entire world, lies in the power of the evil one. But not so if you're a Christian. Come back to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Verse 25. It says, Therefore put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We'll stop there. It says, Let each one of us speak the truth with his neighbor. Speaking the truth is a present imperative. It's a command, by the way, and it's a present imperative. means it's a continual command. You've got to continue speaking the truth at all times. It's an habitual way of speaking for a believer. I mean, it should be the characteristic of a believer. It should be what characterizes a person's life. Not sometimes, but all the time. Yes, we are to speak the truth. But how are we to speak the truth? If you look with me in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, reads rather speaking the truth in love. Even as we speak the truth, we are to speak the truth in love. I mean, some people major on the side of speaking the truth, but they are harsh as they speak the truth. Some people major on the side of love, they don't speak the truth. Because they think that if they speak the truth, they would offend that relationship. They don't want to lose friends. They don't want to lose popularity. So they just love. They don't speak the truth. I mean, both are extremes. Both people are lacking in love. I mean, you need to speak the truth at all times. And if there is no truth then your love is not a genuine love. Truth needs to be spoken in love. Now, being truthful does not mean you reveal everything about everything. It doesn't mean sharing your thoughts on everything. Sometimes there's wisdom in silence. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, we read, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent, wise. Have you heard people say this? I'm just a hope and book. I just speak my mind out. Beloved, you don't have to speak your mind out. Words hurt. And if your words don't edify, don't say it. Think about this. You come across a mother who's lost a newborn baby. You don't go to, go to the mother and say, I'm sorry, you're young. You can have another baby. Well, there is truth to it. But that is not what you need to say in that moment. If you have nothing to say, just be quiet and be there for them. There's a place for the ministry of silence. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28, we read, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips. He is deemed intelligent. There's a way to look wise. Just be quiet. 
Proverbs 29, verse 11 reads, A fool gives vent to a spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Let's continue in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. It says, Therefore, having put falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another. The reason we should speak the truth, because we are one body, the Bible says. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, and says, We are one body, be adjoined together into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, we read that we are one body, joined and held together, in which every part is working properly. So we are one body, joined together in Christ, joined together by Christ. Uh, before you became a Christian, you may have belonged to a certain place here, a certain country here, a certain language group here, a certain culture here. But when you become one in Christ, you are one new man and you are part of this one body, the church. There's no Jew, no Gentile. It's now one new man, the Christian. And so when you tell a lie, it will damage the body of Christ. I mean, think about everything that can go wrong when you lie. It makes fellowship and unity impossible. And you will not be able to trust a fellow brother or sister, and this will result in a loss of fellowship. Why? Because at the, at the heart of good communication is trust. I mean, you can spend your entire life building trust, and one lie can destroy all of it. If you're not able to trust someone, then you will not be able to share anything in confidence with the other person. So, fellowship is destroyed in the body. I mean, you do not know how much you can say to the other person or how much you can believe what the other person says. Has it happened? Maybe because you saw some kind of lies in the other person. It becomes difficult to trust the other person. On a, on a sidebar, I mean, you cannot trust some people because they never keep anything to themselves. They just are disseminating information to others in the name of prayer. They'll say, pray for so-and-so person. Really, what do I pray for? Well, let me tell you something in secret. Don't share it to someone else. And it goes and goes. I call them gossip givers and gossip takers. It all happens in the name of prayer, and, and we got to be careful about that. But that was on a sidebar. Trust is important in communication. And if you lie, you will look with suspicion on everything the other person says. Lying is destructive. Lying is destructive to the fellowship and unity within the body of Christ. Now before you say, well, I'm glad so-and-so is here, please examine your own lives. Don't shine the mirror at someone else. 
Let's look into the word of God. Do you know in the scriptures, in the book of Genesis, we have a classic example of Abraham. It says Abraham went with his wife Sarah to Egypt to escape the famine. And he was afraid of the Egyptians because he was afraid that he would lose his life. As the Egyptians would probably kill him to take his wife away. So what did he do? He told a lie about Sarah. He told the Egyptians, she is my sister, and this way, even if Sarah was taken away, Abraham's life would be spared. Now we can justify all we want. You can say, well, Sarah was technically Abraham's father's daughter and not the mother's daughter. And so, in a sense, there is some kind of truth to it. But in the end, beloved, Sarah was Abraham's wife. And he told the Egyptians, she is my sister. And why did Abraham do so? Because he was afraid. And this was not the last lie in the family. You find that his son Isaac told the same lie to escape Abimelech in Genesis 20. Such fear never stems from faith in God. Always out of fear. So let us choose to speak the truth at all times. Speak the truth because you want to obey God. That you will commit to speaking the truth even if you look bad in front of others. Even if you think you're going to lose your life. Now what happens if believers say a lie? Well, confess your sin. And turn to God. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. Confess your sin to the Lord. Let's come to the second heading. The second heading is found in verses 26 and 27. Always deal with all anger promptly and biblically. Verse 26 and 27 reads, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. These verses contain four commands. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Four commands. And Paul is quoting this out of Psalm 4, verse 4, where the context is David is reasoning with his enemies about repentance. David is saying, be angry, but don't allow your anger to boil over into sinful vengeance or excessive reaction. This verse has got the attention of many commentators. Pages and pages of ink have been spilled in trying to explain this verse. And we're not going to look at all the possible interpretations and the solutions. Let me just give you what I think is the most possible interpretation. But before I do that, I want to help you understand the word for anger in the Greek. In the Greek, there are three words for anger. There is the word tumos. 
which refers to boiling, out-of-control fury. It was sometimes used to describe to something that went up in smoke, tumas. Then there is another Greek word, parargismos. Para, orgismos. This word is translated wrath. It refers to the anger that burns inside rather than being outwardly explosive. It's inward, seething, fuming. It's a resentment that arises from jealousy, envy, grudge, a bitterness over someone who has wronged us. There's a third word for anger. It's called orge. This is the word translated anger and refers to an anger which is caused by a settled conviction. This anger is aroused when certain principles or priorities you're committed to, according to the standards of God's word, is violated. That's orge. Here in verse 26, let's read that. It says, be angry and do not sin. The first word for anger there that Paul uses is the word orge. So when Paul says, he says, be angry or be orge, he uses the Greek word orge, meaning you are trying to display righteous anger. If it is aroused out of biblical convictions... It is a biblical command that has been violated, and you are to be angry about that. We see righteous anger displayed in Jesus. We read in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus looked around, grieved. At what? At the hardness of their heart. John chapter 2, verse 15 we can stretch it to look like righteous anger because he made a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple because they were turning the father's, his father's house into a marketplace. We see righteous anger demonstrated by God in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. What Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believe, to the Jew and the Gentile. And then he goes on to say, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, the just shall live by faith. And this is what I want you to read, verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed. From where? From heaven. Against what? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So you see, God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. That is righteous anger. We see this righteous anger being displayed by David. In Psalm 97, we read, Oh, you love, you who love Lord, love the Lord, hate evil. So if you really love the Lord, you must hate evil. We see this exemplified in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul got angry with the Corinthians because the Corinthians did not get angry at sin. They tolerated sin and allowed it to fester in their fellowship. They should have been angry with sin when they were not angry with sin. The fact that they tolerated it showed that they were okay with sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11, Paul reminds us that we ourselves should be angry with sin in our lives. 
Uh, we should feel anger. We should have a righteous indignation within ourselves over our sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great commentator, wrote, We should always be angry about sin and evil. Righteous anger is an attribute of God. It is God's settled opposition against sin. And we become more and more like Christ. We will hate the things that Christ hates. It'll grieve us. So there is a right kind of anger. Righteous anger. And this is why we confront a believer in the body of Christ. We are so grieved by their sin. And how it wrecks their life. If you find a person in the church committing adultery, you're grieved about it. You're angry at that sin. If a believer is spreading gossip and slander and dividing the church of Christ, it should be dealt with. The sin of gossip and slander should anger you. I mean, anger is a proper response to sin. It is our duty to be angry. In certain respects. But never angry in a sinful manner. Never in a temper. I'm reminded of a story in First Samuel chapter 15. Samuel was told by God to take this message over to King Saul that he would no longer be king. Why? Because of his disobedience. And the passage continues to tell us that Samuel was grieved. He was angry. He was grieved. He was grieved all night when God told him that Saul would no longer be king. But that grief was also driven by his sympathy for Saul. Saul deserved the consequences of his sin, but Samuel had a loving heart that grieved Saul's heart. He waited till the night was done, and in the morning he went out to Saul to remind him of the warning. What would we have done? Would we have been quick to pick up the phone and drive the nail into the coffin right then and there? I mean, there's a fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. It's a fine line. First, we need to examine how, what kind of anger it is. Whether it's righteous anger or unrighteous anger. I mean, it becomes a difficult task because when you get angry, you have emotions come in the way. This is why we need to separate our emotions from our anger. Well, why are we angry? What's the rationale behind our anger? Is it because people did not accept our opinion? Or is it because God's word is compromised? The only reason you and I are to be angry is at actual sin. Sin that can be pointed from the word of God as sin. Not our personal preferences, but sin from God's word. Charles Spurgeon writes, We do well when we are angry with sin because of the wrong which it commits against our good and gracious God. So we ought to be righteously angry if it's a sin against God. 
We have to be careful there, though, and we'll come to that in a moment. But on a sidebar, what should be your response when someone sins against you? You need to forgive. We have the story in the gospel in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 to 35. We read about a slave who owned his master 10,000 talents. Jerry Bridges in his book says, you know how, many tal- how much it costs? It's about 200,000 years worth of pay. 200,000 years worth of pay he owed to this master. And what does his master do? He forgave him. But the slave went on to find another person who owed him three months worth of pay. And you know what he did? He took him, bound him, and handed him over to the authorities. And you know what the story line is? How much more does God forgive us? And should we not extend the forgiveness that we have from God to other people around us? That's what we do when people sin against us. So let's continue to look at our anger because we need to be careful when we are angry, that we are angry at sin, not because someone did not consider our opinions. Righteous anger, according to one person, focuses upon God and His kingdom, His rights and His concerns, not on me, my kingdom, my rights and my concerns. You are righteously angry because God's word is compromised. I mean, if you're angry because you did not get your way, then what difference is there between you and a two-year-old who just throws a temper tantrum because he did not get his toys? I mean, you may reason in your mind, only if they did it my way, I wouldn't have been so angry. Let me tell you, beloved, you're angry because you are the center of the issue. You're angry because you didn't get what you want. Beloved, there's a right kind of anger. And there's a wrong kind of anger. What should be our response as we get angry? Plain. Our response should be, verse 26 reads there. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. How do we sin? Well, we can have a bad temper. We can be bad-tempered people. You know, to be bad-tempered, uh, what bad temper is like Mount Vesuvius. I mean, you erupt uncontrollably. Uh, you may justify and say, well, I was born like that. You know, I, I, my dad was like that. This is just the way I am. It's just the hormones in me kicking in. I grew up in a disruptive, dysfunctional family, and I'm not skilled at emotional communication. And and some of the people will say, well, it's just a side effect of certain medications I take. Not so. That's what the American Psychological Association would say. Not the Bible. The Bible says it's a sin issue. American Psychological Association says, says, well... You blame nature or your nurture for your sin, not so the Bible. Now, it's possible that your upbringing has some influence over you. It is possible that the environment that you grew up has influenced you to some extent, but those are never excuses. 
for your sinful behavior. We are all sinful by nature and we live in a fallen environment. We are all tempted in various ways. But, but if you're a Christian, you're set free from slavery to sin. And the Bible states in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creation, the old is gone. Are you easily provoked? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, we say love is not easily provoked. We must not be fiery, zesty people waiting to explode. How do you respond when you're surrounded by bad drivers? How do you respond when someone rear-ends you? How do you respond when you're trying to explain something to someone? Say your spouse, and they don't get it. How do you respond when your husband asks you something a third time and a fourth time and, and on and on, and you lose your patience? How do you respond when your mom tells you something and she does something else totally? How do you respond when your children have been told 400 times, I mean it, 400 times not to do something, and they do the same thing over again? How do you respond when your boss blames you for something you were not even aware of? Does that happen? Yeah. Are you easily provoked? The word provoked is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. It says, someone who is easily offended, someone who flies off the handle, someone who is easily exasperated. We find that word in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. You know, beloved, if you and I are easily irritated, easily provoked, easily angered. The real issue has to do with our rights. You find your rights violated. You have your rights, your time, your agenda, your schedule, and you do not want anyone infringing into your space because your rights matter to you, and so it triggers your anger. And we become sinfully angry. James chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 clearly tells us that what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, is this not your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have, so you murder. And when you get angry, you may think that you're completely right. That you're morally right to get angry. You may find yourselves even legitimately thinking that it's right. Like, for example, the boss is angry with his workers because they are not performing well. It's a legitimate anger. Why are they not doing well? I mean, a wife is angry because her husband is not loving. What's wrong with that? I mean, she wants a loving husband. Children are angry with their parents because they are not understanding. Shows that anger is rightfully deserved in these cases, but what you're not realizing is why those people got angry. Those people got angry because their desires became idolatrous. 
Instead of turning to God for trust and hope in their situation, they turned to people for hope. The wife thought that the husband would be the savior, and so when the husband is not loving them, she's getting angry. Instead of looking to God, the true savior. And when you get angry, you begin to keep a record of books for months. It's like a ledger. You keep accounts. And sometimes for years and decades. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry, do not sin. But again, be angry righteously because God's word is compromised, not because your rights have been compromised. Be angry and do not sin. Do not engage in wrongdoing. And then he goes on and to say, verse 26, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I remember early years of my marriage when I realized this and had a little bit misunderstanding. I say misunderstanding between me and my wife. And I would stay open, eyes open. Who is going to say sorry first? I know it doesn't happen with you guys. <laughs> It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this time, Paul uses a different Greek word in verse 26. The first time he said, be angry, be orge. But this time, he uses a different Greek word. Do not let the sun go down on your paraorgismos. It's a different Greek word. You don't find that in the English language only if you're using a different version. Because I think some version says wrath. Some say it's anger. So it's the term anger in both cases. So there's no difference in the English. But it's a different Greek word. Para or gizmos. It's a much stronger word than orge. It means exasperation. It means out of control anger. It means you're determined to seek vengeance. It's bitter, hateful, determined to get back its own. And this is the wrath that the apostle refers to the second time in verse 26. This is not the anger of God. The apostle Paul is condemning the wrong kind of anger. This is not the kind of anger we ought to feel as Christians. This is the kind of anger in which the person becomes heated. And he takes it personal against other people. I mean, you're not able to reason anymore in this kind of anger. Your mind is clouded. You can't think. You can't evaluate. In this kind of anger, all you think is, I'm right, and others are wrong. And you know what happens in the process? Paul warns us in verse 28. He says, the devil will take an opportunity. When you are given into this form of an anger, Paul says, give no opportunity to the devil. The the word devil is the word diabolos, which means slander. Slanderer. So anger will lead to slander. And this is the opportunity that the devil took to arouse man against God and made them believe that God was against them. Once you have this paraorgismos para kind of anger, wrath, it just piles out of control. You 
You will keep going until you desire revenge and you will treat people with contempt and malice and you will cut yourself up people and you will become vindictive. Let me read something from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 2 verses 10 to 11. It says, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive indeed what I have forgiven. If I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In other words, if you have an angry, unforgiving spirit, the Bible says Satan will take advantage of that. This is why Paul says, let not the sun go down on your wrath, on your paragosmos. Stay away from it. Uncontrolled anger is sin. Now, don't tell me you can't control your anger. You know why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So if you're not able to control your anger, you're not exercising the fruit of the Spirit. It is to deny the power of the gospel in your life. It is to deny the fact that you're a member of the body of Christ. Because you need to be concerned about the member of the body of Christ when you get angry. One preacher said, if you smash your thumb with a hammer, you don't cut off the thumb in anger for being so careless. Or whack off your hand that held the hammer for being so careless. Rather, you will nurture the sore thumb back to health because it is part of your body. Do you see that? In the same way, we are to treat the brother who gave you a sore thumb like he is part of your body. We need to have that perspective of the body of Christ. An easy response is when somebody hurts you, or you're angry with someone, just cut it off. But you wouldn't do that to your own body, would you? No. You know, in Luke chapter 9, the story in the village of Samaritans, they would not receive Jesus. So James and John were indignant. They were angry. So they asked Jesus in verse 54 of Luke chapter 9. He says, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, they had chapter and verse for their action. It did happen in the Old Testament in Elijah's case. So they had chapter and verse. Second Kings chapter 1 verses 9 through 16 based on the promise of God. God, <laughs> You know what Jesus told them? Jesus rebuked James and John for their lack of compassion. For their lack of compassion. So let us be careful that we do not let the sun go down on our anger. Don't let anger fester. Resolve it. I mean, you don't want to be caught on the wrong side of eternity, do you? None of us know if we will see another day. 
The only opportunity you probably have to resolve anger is today. After death comes judgment. Now, it's true, if you're a believer, there's no condemnation. But why get on the other side of eternity and face Christ and be exposed of this unforgiving attitude that you've had and you've harbored against someone? Let us be careful. Now, you know, how do you handle anger? Let me tell you what people do to handle anger. They will rehearse it. How? They'll pray to God. And as they pray to God, they will rehearse it in their mind over and over and over again. And as a result, what's happening is they want justice. They're saying, God, you got to bring justice to the situation. And this is from the hands of a redeemer in the hands of, uh, forget the name of the book by Tripp. But uh, it says, or they would speak about it to another person. That's what some people do, right? When they're angry, they'll speak about it to another person. And you know what they're doing at that time? They're basically gossiping. Or they would rehearse it over and over in their own mind. And you know what happens with that? They're harboring bitterness. So either they want justice or they want to gossip or they want to be growing in bitterness. So what do we do with anger? Let me give you a couple of points. Address the situation with humility. Address the problem, not the person. Maybe the cause of that anger is because you desired something more than God in order to be happy. And you're willing to sin to get it in your hands. Maybe that's become an idolatrous thing in your life. Maybe that's a false savior in your life. Third, remember you're not God. You're not. Fourth, remind yourself that God has been very gracious to you in Christ Jesus. And if God has been so gracious to you in Christ Jesus, you need to be gracious to others. Fifth, remember that you are a new creation in Christ. If any man is in Christ, is a new creation. Old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. Remind yourselves, God is sovereign. He is in control. Everything that happens is in the complete control of God. Nothing can go wrong. That's what, you remember the story in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And lastly, remind yourself of the grace of God. You know, there is a sanctifying grace available to you. Remind yourself of the grace of God. So, beloved, in closing, we must not lie. And we must be angry at evil, but we must not sin. We must not let the sun go down on our anger. Now, as believers, we may fail occasionally. And what do we do when we fail occasionally? Go to the Lord. First John 1 John 1.9 always says, If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of all your unrighteousness. 
for the purpose of sanctification, go to a brother or a sister. Don't go to someone who probably sees you like once in three months. No, go to someone who sees you every single day and talk to them. Do you see a characteristic of lies in my life? Am I an angry person? And when they tell you so, listen, don't be angry. That helps you in your sanctification. That helps you become accountable. But on the flip side, if you're not a believer, you will never be able to live the life that the scripture calls you to live. You will never. You cannot live the life of a new man if you're an unbeliever. Why? Because you still belong to the old kingdom. You still belong to darkness, and you still belong to darkness, but you're trying to live like the new life. You're trying to live as children of the life. No, my friend, you cannot. You are only trying to change your behavior without changing your heart. So what can you do? Call out to Jesus. Go to Him. Seek Him. Trust Him. Tell Jesus to save you. And God is faithful. If you cry out to Him, God will save you. Remind yourselves that you're a sinner from the Word of God, that God sent Christ to suffer the wrath of your sin upon the cross. And as you cry out to God for the free gift of salvation, Christ will give you eternal life. And with eternal life, you will now be able to live the new life because you have the promised Holy Spirit, the power that raised Christ from the dead, given to you. That is what you need to live the life victoriously. Beloved, I pray that you would be able to do this with the grace that God gives you. Father, we thank you for the opportunity you give us, Lord, to study your word. Lord, we are far short from all these things. We have failed numerous times. We have lied. We have displayed anger. And some righteously, but it has slipped on to become unrighteousness. Because we wanted justice. Father, we know this day that you're a forgiving God. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. You wiped our slate clean. That you don't hold any of these sins against us. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to live our lives for your glory. With the power that you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.